0: this week's episode of the weeds is sponsored by Club W why don't you be fun not pretentious start learning as you drink at clubw.com weeds and you'll get 50% off your first order that's clubw.com weeds this week's episode of the weeds is sponsored by redream watch the videos find local events and join the conversation at redreamproject.org the following podcast contains explicit language oh wait we're rolling sentence Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds Vox's Policy Podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me, uh, as usual, Sarah Cliff and uh, Ezra Klein. Back from Brazil. I am back from Brazil. I heard
1: you badmouthed me on the show last week.
2: We well, have to listen to find out. You know, I, I have to
0: say, I think it was it was a questionable choice of
2: time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one reason I'm excited about today's show. I am looking at, at Sarah right now, and she has, I would estimate, 15 pages of charts in, from, in front do. of her. I do. I
2: heard charts are good for podcasts. Yeah, so I it's some. a
1: very visual medium, so people enjoy the, the sort of visual representation yes. of data. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to be good,
0: because if, if you want to see data visualized, I think a podcast is, is where you turn. Um, but this is because we, we're going to talk today about electronic medical records a subject i, I find excited. sort of grimly fascinating <laughs> and have
1: wanted to to talk about for a while i find it wonderfully fascinating well it's just the least grim thing well, we I say about matt, would be, matt
2: has been the person who's been pushing for this episode i have it's been because a weekly
0: request i think it's weird that medical records don't really seem to be electronic <laughs>
1: it um, is weird before jumping into this we should say uh, to just preview other things today We're also going to talk about the candidate tax plans. We created a a tax calculator that has, I think, led to some really interesting insights about what Cruz and Trump and Sanders and Clinton are really doing. And then, Matt, you have a a political science paper that might shed some light on Trumpism as a phenomenon in, in ways that certainly helped me think about it more clearly. But yes, that all it's going
0: up. to be a great show, a great <laughs> show. We're going to make the weeds great again. <laughs> but first, Sarah, the reason electronic medical records is like a policy issue, it's not just, well, why don't doctors use electronic records, right? right? Yes. There so, was supposed to be a big federal initiative to get this to happen.
2: So one way I think about this, if you went into your bank right now and you gave them some money... And they took out a pen and paper, and they wrote down, like, Sarah Cliff is depositing $300. You would think that was really weird, and you would think maybe my money is going to get lost. And, like, this doesn't seem like a good way to manage my money, given all that we know about computers. But a lot of us go to the doctor, and that's essentially what happens. Doctors scribble down notes. They write down things, and they're confusing handwriting. But sometimes when you go to the doctor's office, there's, like, all these folders that, like, everyone's information is in all these paper folders that... um if, like you go to a hospital, no one knows about the paper folder at your primary care doctor's office. right. So, in general, there's this pretty compelling theory that the healthcare system would work a lot better if everything was electronic and your hospital could share your data with your primary care doctor and everyone would know if you, you know, God forbid, show up at the hospital unconscious, they could know about your allergies and they could know about your medical history. So part of the stimulus that passed in 2009 was putting a lot of money towards giving doctors incentives to adopt these records. Adoption rates are definitely up. This is one of the charts I have with me that shows as of about a year ago, 96% of hospitals have a certified EHR, 75% 75% Electronic health record. Electronic health records, So yeah, and um, 75% have a basic health record. I don't actually know the
1: difference what, between those. What but was the number in 2009?
2: The number in 2009 was 12%. Wait, really? Yeah. So it's been a That's very- a huge fucking increase. So it's actually. been a rapid adoption, but I think there's a big question of people have these systems. How are they using them? And these are some of the incentives that are worked into this whole um, electronic medical record kind of incentive system. I mean, there's you think the about stimulus. 2009,
0: right? It's not like keeping records on computers <laughs> right. was like really bleeding-edge technology in 2009. It's it's such as if you went to a bank today and they were writing down on little slips of paper, you'd think that was weird. You'd think
1: that was really weird in 2009. Yes, in fact, right. the first time I heard this bank analogy was before 2009.
2: Right. So it really shows, like, Doctors and hospitals—they were not going in this direction by themselves. Like they were not really like jazzed about doing this. It was really this federal incentive system. Like you see a kick in, and you see like the graph I'm looking at that is great for this podcast is just like this like big lineup that starts really 2009, 2010, and just like numbers keep like adding 20, 15% can each I, year. Can
1: I ask you a question about that, sir? Yes. So, what was the conventional wisdom or the prevailing wisdom about why it had been so difficult to get doctors to adopt these records. Because one thing that I think is really interesting about this particular issue is you could imagine an industry that is as a whole resistant to technology But that doesn't describe American medicine at all. American medicine is highly technologically intense. It is continuously rolling out new imaging treatments, new kinds of surgeries, new prescription drugs. It's a big reason why it costs so much. I went uh, about a year ago to a doctor that I got on ZocDoc, and this doctor was Terrible. But I got him on ZocDoc. And I went in, and having made my appointment on my iPhone, I walked in, and Mm -hmm. all the records were paper. They had those huge things Mm -hmm. of, you know, manila file folders. So what was the theory why medicine, which is so good at integrating new treatment technologies, had been so bad at integrating information technology as late as
2: 2009? So I kind of see two big reasons. One is just the business of healthcare, where it is a lot better business to keep your patient at your hospital or at your doctor's office. So one of the things that's great for patients about having electronic medical records is it, in theory, would make it a lot easier for me to kind of see whichever doctor I wanted, and they'd have all my information. Right now, like you go to the doctor, and each time you fill out like four different forms, and like you fill out this paper, and they put it somewhere, and this is just like a thing you do each time you go to a new doctor. So having these paper records, even though it's a bad experience for patients, is not a terrible business decision for hospitals who kind of like it makes it easier to have a closed system where you're holding on to your patients. I think the second thing, and then that sets doctor offices a little bit apart from banks, is they're writing down like a lot of stuff. It's not just numbers. It's not just money you're depositing, but it's different conditions and notes on what the person looks like. There's a lot of complaining from doctors that this takes way more time in an electronic medical record system where they kind of have to put in these certain codes. It wants all this information from them. It wants a really comprehensive record. And they're just kind of used to jotting down whatever, you know, they had on paper. There might be somewhat of a generational shift that happens over the next few years. As like new doctors. This is kind of how they start taking notes on computers. And they move in this direction. But it's like a huge complaint when you talk to doctors about. And I think it actually reminds me of being a journalist where there's a lot of content management systems that are really hard to work in. Like, they want you to enter all this stuff, and they're always crashing, and they're, they don't seem to fit into your workflow well. And, and a lot of electronic medical records, I've always wondered... Why someone hasn't made like a great electronic medical record that's super easy to use. That seems like a fantastic business idea. Because from what I hear from doctors, one like that just doesn't exist yet. Well,
1: not only that, but I think the journalism analogy is interesting here. Because journalists are pretty digital now. They do their writing on computers. They publish digitally. But if you go out reporting, journalists tend to take notes by hand. I actually don't because I can't read my own handwriting. (laughs) I have such incredibly bad handwriting that it, it is literally if i go on a trip and take my notes by hand i will not be able to use that reporting in the future but when i bring a computer to an off the record or something or or a round table i get yelled at because it's allowed to type it's allowed and nobody else is doing it so like i seem very strange to everybody including it also is like the makes the interaction
2: there. you know sticking with that it makes the interaction weirder yeah. like cuz you're like looking at your computer you're not looking at the person like one of the reasons i like using pen and paper is because it just like doesn't feel as odd like me interviewing someone and like looking down at my laptop and typing and i think that's one thing doctors talk about and even patients are a little bit mixed on having computers in the exam room because sometimes they feel like they're not even looking at you they're just like have their back turned to you like typing notes into the computer so kind mm-hmm. of like it changes the interaction we're used to when we go to the doctor. But, but I
0: actually think there's a, a very direct analogy to the note-taking in interviews, right? Which is, you know, you could arrive from, I don't know, Neptune and say, you know, it, it would be much more efficient if journalists all kept all their interview notes in an easily accessible database, <laughs> so that instead of, like, me needing to replicate <laughs> Ezra's interview with Jack Lou, I could just look up, what did he say? And everyone should have all their notes, you know, at least of on-the-record <laughs> conversations, fully stored in, like, a searchable cloud-based access and like the human stockpile of knowledge would be much better. We would have much more liquidity, much more flow. And that's all true. The reason journalists don't want to do that is like, A, (laughs) people don't want to change their note-taking methods, all this stuff about the clickety-clack of keyboards. But also, I mean, people in a little bit of a cynical way, but also just like in a normal pride in your work kind of way, people want to do their own work and not just like have it go be, be public for everybody. There's just an inherent tension between you know we we have a healthcare system that is composed of thousands of thousands of little entrepreneurial medical practices all around the country that you know they have their own financial interests and they have their own way of doing things and then we kind of have like a an idea of a healthcare system in which it would be better that you know if you move to Indianapolis everything would just transfer over seamlessly.
1: So can I flip this to the other side of the coin here for a second? Because we're talking here a lot about why doctors did not use medical records, but I think there's also an interesting set of questions about why. We want them to use medical records. Mm -hmm. And one version is just it freaks us out as reasonably young people that nothing is on computers. Another is that there is questions of interoperability, what kind of care you get, whether your care can be easily transferred to a hospital. But the big one that happened around the stimulus, and so I think you can add a lot more color to this than I can, is an argument that was being made, among others, by the Congressional Budget Office Mm -hmm. that electronic medical records would save a lot of money. That argument, I think, is one of the things that drove the big investment, but it's also an argument that I think has come under increasing fire in recent years. Yes. Do you, could you walk through a little bit yeah. of that?
2: So, so the argument is that if providers have better access to information, if they know that your last doctor already did an MRI, they won't do that MRI because they have it, it's in your medical record, there'll be better coordination that will lead to savings. And it feels like intuitively... That should make sense. Like, I know I've had experiences dealt with this foot injury for the past year where, you know, one doctor would want to order the exact same test that the other doctor did. And I'd have to intervene and say, like, no, we already had it. I'd have to track down the record for my old doctor and, like, do all this coordination care that should be actually pretty easy if an electronic medical record had all that information. That idea has definitely come under increasing fire over the past few years. There was one influential study in um, one of my favorite journals, Health Affairs, uh, which is kind of the preeminent journal on health policy, in 2012 that really challenged this idea. And it made a very different argument and told a very different story about medical records. It found that um, electronic medical records didn't actually decrease the ordering of tests It increase the ordering of tests, because now at a click of a button, you can just add an MRI, add a PET scan, like add whatever scans you want. And, and it reduced the friction associated with like literally just writing out the order. So there's actually some reason. And, and like, it might be that you see this like array of tests and you think, well, why not that one? It's so easy to order that you're just clicking buttons on a screen and, and possibly increasing healthcare costs. Right. It's like how I, how
1: I order way more garbage on Amazon exactly. than if, it would, if I had to actually go to the bookstore every time I wanted a book. Right. Yeah.
2: There's no barrier towards ordering tests anymore. I don't think there's a definitive answer on this, but I think the argument that this will definitely save money is a harder one to make now than it was like five years ago when we were starting on this. So you can definitely make other arguments and you know, what if this makes healthcare a lot safer, where we know a lot about um, drug interactions, for example, like we know someone's taking this one drug, you prescribe them this other drug and like, ding, 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 like those two have a very bad interaction. So it's possible that we'll see patient safety gains. There's also some reasons to be skeptical of that. But, you know, so there could be other good things coming out of it. But I don't think this idea that It'll generate savings. is is as sure of a thing as we might have thought it was like five years ago.
1: I, I want to focus on something you just said though for a minute because I think it's important. There is one version of this discussion. I think it's the discussion we've primarily been having up until now that is about electronic health records as the end in itself. The other version of this discussion, which I think is more interesting in the long term, is about electronic health records as for lack of a better term, a platform or a basic technological infrastructure. Because I think when you ask what are the interesting long-term effects here, it isn't that we will be able to keep the same kinds of notes that we keep on paper in a computer. That will help, and maybe it'll be a small productivity gain, and it would definitely be easier when you're trying to transfer those notes from one hospital to another or a doctor to a specialist or whatever it might be. But the gains there, I think, are reasonably minor. But you just brought something up, Sarah, that, that you hear people talk about a lot, which is automated internal systems that whenever you tried to prescribe a new medication would automatically create an alert if something else the patient was taking had a conflict or a negative interaction with that new medication. And a lot of what IBM has been doing with Watson to give sort of one future-oriented example has been trying to create a computer-assisted diagnostic program that would be a way that doctors would begin to input symptoms and Watson would be really, really good at creating differential diagnostics and Watson would continuously have more updated information than any individual doctor possibly could. And so I think that one of the the interesting questions here is even if electronic medical records don't save money at the beginning, can you create a system where the Data is built on some kind of shared architecture so that new applications can be built on top of that architecture. And I think that gets us into one of the really big questions about how electronic medical records are actually being adopted, which is these questions of interoperability. Right now, even though you're getting a lot of electronic medical records to some degree adopted in hospitals, a lot of those records cannot really speak to each other. A lot of them are under very proprietary kinds of software. And as such, there's not really big advances being made towards this world where, as in with the internet, you can create all kinds of new applications on top of it. Or as in with you know iOS, you can create all kinds of new apps on top of it. And that keeps us in a world that's much more limited to the note-taking functions and recording functions of medical records as opposed to a much more sort of digital approach to medical diagnosis and treatment.
2: And, you
0: know, if you if you push the, the bank analogy, right? I mean, everything is fully digital in your bank accounts. But if you've ever tried to walk into a bank and say, I don't actually want to have an account with your <laughs> bank anymore. I would like my account to be at the other bank that's across the street. <laughs> suddenly there's a lot of problems. You know what I mean? Like financial transfers that you would think could be done at the stroke of a key really can't. And you actually need to close out the account. You need to fill out paperwork. They will hand you a physical cashier's check. You can walk across the street, say like, here, I've got it. And that's because... I mean, America's financial institutions, I'm sure if they wanted to come together and create like a smooth, seamless system for moving from one bank to another could. But on the one hand, banks don't want to make it easy for you to close your account. And on the other hand, the banking system as a whole doesn't want the financial architecture to be an easy open access platform, that it would be simple for new entrants to just like get in and you know take everybody's money. So to some extent, I think what you see with this is that it's like, if we had an integrated healthcare system, then they would have been trying to coordinate care with a lot of pieces of paper. And that would have been really difficult. And so then they would have been really excited about using computers to coordinate care more efficiently. But we we don't have an integrated healthcare system like that. So we're pushing a technology that would facilitate coordination. But if the institutions don't want to coordinate, you know, then they don't want to coordinate.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this kind of gets to like what Ezra was saying about like, well, how are people using these things? You could theoretically see a world where like every doctor's office had an ATM like thing and you put in your card and it gets your information and like you're checked in. I think one of the interesting things, you know, raised by Ezra's point is like, what exactly is the role of doctors particularly what exactly is the role of like a doctor examining you versus some kind of algorithm that has like the vast history of medicine including the most up to date studies and i think it's a really interesting area that we don't know a lot about yet and kind of an interesting question to consider like you have some kind of symptoms like would you prefer To put those into Watson and like see what Watson says and like Watson will ask you follow-up questions because it needs to know more information. Or like, would you prefer to tell a human being who has seen a lot of patients who might be able to kind of like look at you and like poke you a little bit and be like, oh, you know, I've seen a lot of people. This is what I think is wrong with you. Right now, I think it seems like we're somewhere a little from column A, a little bit from column B. I don't know if we become like more um, okay with robot doctors, with like literally going on the internet and like talking to Dr Watson and getting him to tell us what's wrong with us which we do a little bit with WebMD to like not a great end because it turns out whenever you put anything in WebMD you're probably just gonna die immediately <laughs> but it, it kind of raises a question of like who is going to be our preferred and better doctor like 15 20 years into the future I, I for
1: one welcome our doctor robot <laughs> overloads I don't
2: think our doctors welcome I don't think they will. but I
1: but I also think this is a place in which Doctors are now and will continue to be sort of like every other profession. So let me give a different version of this analogy. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were at the beginning of arthroscopic surgeries. And something you could have said is, would you prefer to have a surgeon who you know has been training to use his hands in surgery and repair torn ACLs and things like that for, for 20 or 30 years, or would you prefer to have some computer jockey, who's also a surgeon, obviously, doing a robot-assisted surgery. And the answer is not that what we ended up having was truly robot-driven surgeries. It's that we have robot or computer-augmented human-driven surgeries, right? And I think the place in something like Watson will go is not to replace doctors, but to be part of their toolkit. In the same way that as a journalist, we are constantly using Google to augment our ability to know about the world. We're not confined to the individual records we've kept, to the individual articles we've already read, to the people we, we can report with. We can also run these very, very big searches. And I don't think it's made us any less useful or or any less good at our jobs. I think it's made us, frankly, a lot better at them. And so I think these kinds of of sharp distinctions are unlikely to become reality for, for a very long time to come. But we are going to get to a place where there's going to be a very sharp difference between the doctors who are good at using Watson or whatever is the set of programs that ends up being really helpful in differential diagnosis and the doctors who are not. And I think, by the way, that's happened in journalism. It's happened in a lot of places where I think the economy has increasingly been going to a place, and Tyler Cohen talks about this a lot, where there are great rewards to being somebody who is good at working with computers, who can be made much more productive by computers, and real cost to being somebody who can either be replaced by computers and robotics or who is himself just sort of bad at working with them and and resistant to it. But I mean, this is, you know, as in
0: so many areas, right? The the fundamental question of of the medical industry is what does good performance mean in this regard, right? I mean, it seems like in a strict business sense, right, what it means to be good at working with computers and diagnosing patients is Googling up some combination of symptoms that suggests that the person needs expensive new treatments, <laughs> right? Like, that's how you make money in the healthcare system, is somebody comes in and is like, oh, my elbow kind of hurts. And it's like, what you need is this $2 million pill. <laughs> and then you need some like reason for that. It can't just be that when the patient looks into it, it's like like, no, that's total bullshit. I just need to wait a day. Much more than the technical aspects of medicine, it's those sort of institutional factors. And it's that, you know, if you go to a source who's like an insurance company, right, whose financial incentive is to tell you, like, you don't need treatment, they tend to come up with good reasons why you don't. And if you go to a source like a doctor who's receiving third-party payment, they'll tell you that you do need treatment. And the question is... Always going to be. It's like, how do we organize things so that there are credible, not just people who are well informed, but people who are credible to patients in terms of saying, like, this is what you need, this is what you don't need, and you can sort of take them seriously. Because otherwise, healthcare it's emotionally fraught, it's often painful, and there's a it's expensive, but it's also lucrative. To, to me, like what you've seen with with the electronic medical records is that. You can't just sort of like push idly at kind of one point and then hope that the whole system is going to produce the outcomes that you want. In 2009, nobody was using electronic health records because they fundamentally didn't want to do the things that you can do with these health records. You can write down, okay, you have to do it. So then they adopt them. But how much really changes?
2: I would expect actually like a lot of change going forward. And I think part of it is kind of the structure of the program that the government used to push these. So it started off with rewards, or basically you get more Medicare reimbursement if you do steps X, Y, and Z. I don't remember the exact year, but at some point it switches to punishment, where you start losing Medicare reimbursement if you do not meet these standards. And each year the standards go up. So like it starts with like literally just having some version, like a very bare bones record, it starts to put in things like interoperability. So you need to do things where you can talk to other hospitals. When you look at these adoption numbers, I, I think there is likely enough um, pressure on the healthcare system. And it is a place where the federal government can pull a lot of levers, like they are controlling a huge part of hospital and doctor budgets, I think one of the ways this will change the healthcare system is these things can be very hard for very small practices. There's a lot of scale to medical records because you have to buy the software, and it's a lot easier if you're a 20 doctor practice or a 500 bed hospital to afford electronic medical record software than it is if you're you know a single orthopedist hanging up a shingle somewhere. So I think one of the things it'll do is kind of change who is able to be a doctor in this new landscape. But I do expect, like as much as things are pen and paper right now, that it, we are on the path to change away from that because the government has the ability to like really wield some like very strong financial incentives. I
1: totally agree that the payment mechanisms are, are a crucial part of this discussion. So a couple of months ago, Atul Gawande, who is, aside from Sarah, the best American writer on medicine, wrote a piece called America's Epidemic yeah. of Unnecessary Care in The New Yorker. And we'll put it in show notes. But he talked about a study in there where researchers looked at 26 tests or treatments that scientific and professional organizations have again and again determined, have no benefit, or are actually outright harmful. And then they took these 26 negative or neutral treatments and looked at what percentage of Medicare patients received at least one of them in a single year. And the answer was 25 to 42% of them. And I think this is something where you could begin to see the union of better payment structures and better electronic, not just medical records, but electronic decision tree sort of systems. And the way I think it could work is like this. And this is something I think by the way that doctors are are and tend to be very resistant to. But these doctors are not trying to screw over patients. They do not know about the research showing that this particular imaging device is not Useful, Or they're dealing with a patient in there who is upset, who is concerned, and who wants an MRI for back pain for which an MRI is not actually medically beneficial. And if there was a medical system that the doctor was using where it put up a little dialogue box or some kind of warning and said, hey – this is actually not a recommended treatment here. This is not a best practice. And the hospital was not going to get reimbursed for it or might pay some kind of penalty for, for doing that kind of treatment or just for over-treating in general, as it would under, say, bundled payments. Then I think you're all of a sudden in a world where you can cut down on a lot of this stuff pretty quickly. I think when we talk about unnecessary care, it's actually a pretty difficult discussion that is had very unclearly. There is a set of things that are unnecessary care where we know they are unnecessary care. And then you hear these these lines, like 15 to 30% of, of medical spending is wasted. And there you're dealing with a lot of observational data showing that things are not working, but we're not exactly sure which things aren't working. I don't think we're going to somehow cut that 15 to 30% down to 0% with this. But I think that there are you know, probably a couple percentage points worth of spending in, in this country, which is actually on care that we know is not useful, that we know is not benefiting patients like those 26 treatments. And that's where you could begin to see a real gain here by picking that low-hanging fruit.
2: Right. And that really depends on the, that depends 100% on your incentive system. Totally. Like whether... Yeah, they're making
1: Money for these? They're right 20 now. Like, treatments. why not
2: order these things? Because you'll get money. Like, you probably assume your patient isn't being harmed by these tests. So, like, and is
1: happier, feels like you did something for them,
2: right? So, it really, and this is something you know, the Obama administration. It's part of Obamacare that doesn't get as much notice as the exchanges and something the Obama administration has really ramped up in like its last few years in office is trying to move to a value based healthcare system. So how do you
1: think that's going?
2: I think the verdict is still out. That's such a boring answer. I, I think. It, the healthcare system will be changed by this, that there will be a lot more value-based payments. Like, And when I say value-based payments, I mean people are getting paid more um, tethered to whether their patients are getting healthier, not just like how much stuff that they're doing.
1: How good of a job do you think they're doing at defining value?
2: I think that's really hard. I don't think they're doing great because I don't think anyone's doing great. So it's really hard to define like what actually is going to do best for your patients. There's a lot um, of talk about paying for quality. What actually counts as quality turns out to be like nearly impossible to measure. And I think this is true not just in healthcare but like in education and other places where there's kind of this push to pay for performance that it's really hard unless like on some like basic issues. Like you could see, you know, management of diabetes might be one where you like have some good quality metrics, but healthcare is so complicated that it's really hard to define what are the right metrics to pick and kind of like a good example and then they all get gamed is the hard part so like a good example and i'll find this paper and put it in show notes is obamacare has this um readmission penalty where if one of your patients is readmitted within 30 days that you don't get paid for that readmission and if it's readmitted you know related to whatever they're in for the first time kind of saying you know you need to get it right the first time there was a really interesting paper where they saw, so, so this seems good. Like, this seems like a good metric. And generally, this is one that's used in the private sector, too.
1: And there's some early evidence that it was working. There's some
2: evidence. Oh, yeah, definitely readmissions in 30 days are really declined. But there's one interesting paper that showed readmissions on day 31 going up. <laughs> so people are basically, like, saying, you know, maybe you put them in observation, like, you hold them somewhere else to avoid the penalty. So, like, the quality metric says things are getting better. But, like, are they actually getting better? And, like, I don't actually know how to fix that problem. I haven't seen a good fix to, like, making sure our quality metrics are really well, robust.
0: There are, there are, like, conceptual ambiguities. Like, I was, my, my, my son was uh, sick over the past few days, and he had a, a very high fever. So I, I got to do a lot of reading about uh, pediatric fever management. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has this... Um, <laughs> Put out a I don't quite know if I if I would say it was a it was a meta-analysis, but it was like a literature review. And what they said is that people are all giving their kids Tylenol and and ibuprofen uh, for fever management. And as far as they can tell, there's no evidence-based reason to do that at all. Fever is not harmful. Uh, overdosing uh, babies with medicine is quite harmful. And so in principle, if you told everyone, no matter how high your kid's fever gets, don't give them any acetaminophen or ibuprofen, you would save lives because nobody would die of overdoses and you would save money because, you know, over-the-counter medicine is not that expensive but it it's not
1: free either do I mean, do a lot of infants die of overdoses of Tylenol no but i mean but it's, it's, it's more it than zero there's and
2: yeah. it's worse with kids where there's there's a good, yes. this american life episode about you know some kids who have died from this because they're much more sensitive to dosing because yeah, they're so much smaller. exactly.
0: But then there's this thing in the middle where they're like, on the other hand, like, that's totally crazy. <laughs> like, ha- having a fever is incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> like, babies can't communicate, really, and you can't communicate with them. And, like... It's hard to know, but it certainly seems like babies feel better when you give them medicine and they don't have a terrible <laughs> fever. So anyway, obviously we gave the baby medicine, and everybody is going to continue to proceed to do that, which is all fine. But it's like you could imagine some kind of really serious, like outcomes-based. You can't imagine it politically happening, but if you took you know a certain number of like CBO documents incredibly seriously, you could imagine a world in which we like prevent the you. Use of over-the-counter anti-fever agents on all children because it has shown that national health expenditures will be reduced and patient outcomes will be improved by not giving anyone children's Tylenol, ch- children's Advil. But that would be terrible. You, you would have people in, in terrible pain constantly. That's, a I think, a fairly unusual case in that it's cut and dry on both ends. But people want relief from the healthcare system, right? I mean, they want relief of physical symptoms, they want relief of emotional distress, things like that. And it's, it's difficult to sort of understand how to quantify that because part of what you want is just like, confidence that you are receiving the appropriate kind of treatment for your problems. And that is a very, in some ways, like socially constructed sort of thing. I mean, if we look at the the HMO experience and, and the like, patient's bill of rights backlash, right? When people had the sense that like, well tight fisted penny pinchers were the reason you weren't getting treatments that your doctors wanted. It it really, really, really didn't work. Whereas if people believe like benevolent, well informed healthcare professionals are telling you like you don't need this surgery that's gonna take time and be painful, then like that's really that's really good. I think the jury is like really out on like how do you bring to the ground level these ideas of like shifting incentives and, and defining
1: quality. I agree with that.
2: As do I. Well, that's (laughs) electronic medical records then. Up next, taxes.
0: So if you're if you're anything like me, then you know you enjoy drinking wine and and you sort of know what you like. You you know when you're enjoying a bottle, you know when you don't like it that much. But I'm not at least really like into the the super details. I don't know all about you know who's got more tannins and, and what's the terroir. And sometimes you know I've had really good bottles recommended to me by by knowledgeable friends. But when I'm sort of like alone there in the wine aisle, I just find myself confused. You know, picking things kind of at random. And with Club W, that guessing game is over. It's a it's a personalized wine club. They ship wine directly to your door, and they don't just send it to you in a convenient and affordable way, but you get wine that you're really going to love. What they do is they ask you a sort of simple six-question quiz that helps them understand what your palate is, and then they send you bottles that are are really tailored to your tastes. They're leading what they call a grape-to-glass wine revolution. That means they work directly with vineyards, they cut out the middleman, and it saves you money. And they even offer you a no-risk guarantee that you're going to love the bottles they send you, or you get your money back. Uh, So right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. Why don't you be fun, not pretentious? Start learning as you drink at clubw.com slash weeds and you'll
1: get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com slash weeds. So, in the previous exciting segment of the Weeds <laughs> podcast, we described a chart to you. <laughs> now, what we're going to describe is a visual data interactive. We, working with the tax policy center, Alvin Chang and, and Sarah Cliff, created a tax calculator that could take the plans that have been released by Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton, and based on your income, based on how big your family is, give you a sense of what their tax plan would mean for you and i would say that overall not not in every case but overall what you saw was massive massive tax cuts from donald trump and ted cruz ted cruz's tax cut and we're talking i'm going to use numbers here that are before interest on the debt cuz we're going to assume as they say these things will be paid for but ted cruz's tax cut would cost 8.6 trillion dollars and donald trump's would cost 9.4 trillion dollars over, Though, over 10 years over 10, 10 years. years those numbers are unfucking believably large to put them in perspective in today's dollars george w bush in 2000 ran on a 1.8 trillion dollar tax cut and he did that during surpluses so trump and cruz and before that rubio as well by the way are in a period of deficits running on tax cuts that are much, 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 much larger than what George W. Bush proposed. And they've not said a word about how they pay for them. Trump's tax cut is equal to 45% of projected individual income tax revenue. I mean, these are just, these are crazy laughable numbers. Hillary Clinton, when you look at it, it's a pretty modest tax plan. I mean, for some people, they get a little tax cut. For some people, they get a, a tax increase. But the numbers in either direction aren't huge. When you move to Bernie Sanders, you begin seeing for a lot of people, particularly rich people, but also people who are middle class and even poor, tax increases and up at the top of the income distribution, the tax increases are huge. Bernie Sanders wants to increase taxes by more than Donald Trump and Ted Cruz want to cut them, which is sort of an amazing thing given the size of what they're doing. And what you see here are... To me, this is really, really helpful because it helped me understand these candidacies in a slightly more reality-based way. Trump and Cruz have a really radical different vision of what the government should be. They're not explaining how they're going to get there, but and I can list off the set of cuts you would need to do to make something like Cruz's tax plan work, but they're looking at a radical shrinking of what the state does and to move that into fairly regressive tax cuts. Hillary Clinton is running as a fairly small C conservative candidate. There's a lot of continuity in what she's doing. She is going to, you know, after four years of Hillary Clinton, even if she got her plans passed, you would see a country that is not exactly like the one Obama is running, but the federal government would not be unbelievably different. And Bernie Sanders is running to take pretty significant chunks of the private sector and bring them onto the budget. The argument Sanders' campaign makes correctly about these sorts of tax calculations is that the Republicans have not said how they'll pay for what they're doing, and it looks like they're giving these huge tax cuts, which is on some level just not true because we don't know who's going to, we don't know how they'll pay for it, what services will get cut, etc. We do know what Sanders is doing. He's bringing healthcare onto the budget. The biggest part of his tax increase is single payer. He's trying to make college a lot cheaper when you go in state. He's got a very big infrastructure investment plan. He wants to expand social security. And so he's taking a lot of spending that is currently happening in the private market and putting it on the public budgets towards public ends that are reasonably progressive. But it is a huge shift. It is not continuity with what Obama has been doing. It is a a really sharp change in the direction of how much the the American state does. And to me, I thought this was actually a really good way of looking at the race right now.
2: One of the things that I found most interesting about, and I've seen the most reaction around, as Alvin and I have like talked about what people have said, is people have been very surprised by the Sanders numbers. Where they kind of look at those, and they knew that universal health care, that having cheaper education, cost more. And I don't think I understood how much more it cost until we kind of laid these numbers bare. We did a poll with the Morning Consult back in um, the start of February, where we kind of asked people. Um, you know, would you be willing to pay more if if there was free health care, if there's free education? And generally, people like the idea. They said, yeah, I would pay higher taxes to have this bigger welfare state. One thing we didn't ask on and one thing I've become convinced by this calculator is really important here is how much more are people willing to pay? And do they feel comfortable turning over these big amounts of money we give to colleges, that we give to our health insurance plans? Do they feel comfortable turning that money over to the government. And I think once you put actual dollar figures on it, once you're looking at $5,000, $10,000 tax increases, that's when there's kind of some second thinking about it. And like, as we said, it's like a big change from the status quo. It's not like Clinton, where there's a little bit of change here and there. Turns out, Buying a welfare state, it costs a lot of money. You get a lot in return. But are you willing to turn that money over to the government? And one of the interesting things I've seen in reaction to the calculator is people kind of taking a second thought about whether that's a shift that they're comfortable with or not. I
0: would say, you know, particularly comparing Clinton and Sanders, one, one of the really great things about this calculator, obviously you're supposed to answer it truthfully <laughs> and get an answer for yourself, but it's, it's more fun to play around with, yes. with different scenarios. And to see with Clinton what a sort of wide range of kinds of people are really just not affected. And then you can also look at what she's able to accomplish in exchange for that, which is Uh, relatively limited. And so if you're talking about broadly speaking, normal middle class families are just not going to see a big change from, from Clinton. You're not going to be paying a lot more in taxes, and you're also not going to be getting a lot more in services. You're talking about targeted tax increases on the wealthy in order to finance
1: targeted interventions to help the poor and the and the near poor. One thing I do think is just that we're only seeing in the tax plan the things that would cost money. So something like paid leave, which I think could be a, a big benefit for many in the middle class, it wouldn't show up here. Yes. No, th- that is True. These are very important
0: changes if they impact you. Rich people, very rich people, would pay a lot more taxes under Hillary Clinton and they will be quite sad about it. There just aren't that many of those people. And if you qualify for some of the kinds of tax credits she's proposed in child care, that will be a big boost to your income. But if you don't, you know, it kind of won't. Whereas Sanders would be having a significant impact on the life of everybody in America for better or for worse almost everyone will be getting some additional government services that they would use and everyone will be paying more taxes and so the extent to which you value those government services is going to turn out to be a big deal in in topia whether bernie care like is good and you like it is going to totally make or break, like, the viability of, of that agenda. Whereas, you know, for Hillary Clinton, right, if her childcare subsidies, like, if that turns out to be kind of, like, not great, and it's like, eh, it in a weird way doesn't sink her presidency because also most people didn't pay for it. You know, Providers will like whatever it is they've got. Poor people will probably appreciate whatever kind of assistance they're getting. Where Sanders is really saying middle class person is going to be having a lot more money taken out of their paycheck, but then in exchange is going to be getting this totally different health insurance package. And like, if you like it, that's going to be great. And if you don't like it, it's going to be terrible. And if it doesn't work, the whole thing is going to be a disaster. And it's it's a moment that it matches his rhetoric about a political revolution, right? It would be very different. It would be very high stakes. If it actually happened, people would either be much more enthusiastic about it than we are currently sort of giving credit for, and he would fundamentally and permanently transform America in a way that could never be undone, uh, or else it would be like an epic disaster that discredits the left irrevocably, right? It's not going to just be like, well, some stuff happened.
1: So something I think that the calculator really underscores is the responsibility gap between the Democratic campaigns and the Republican campaigns right now. And, And this is something that I find genuinely pretty frustrating. So... If you look at Bernie Sanders' website, he has a page where he lists every big spending program he wants to do and how he's going to pay for it. And you can quibble with this. I think that Ken Thorpe, who's a health economist, has made the case that Sanders has significantly underestimated the cost of his single-payer plan. I think Thorpe is right about that. But nevertheless, Sanders is saying that his single-payer plan will cost trillions of dollars. He's putting forward tax increases to pay for it. Hillary Clinton, too, has been pretty clear about her pay-for's. Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and before them Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush have not said anything. They have these gigantic tax plans and they will run around saying the huge tax cut you're gonna get. And they have not said at all how they will pay for it. If they will pay for it with spending cuts, if they'll put it on, on the national uh, Donald debt. Donald Trump has been clear. He's gonna make the country so rich. <laughs> <laughs> so but I wanna I wanna put the size of these things in a little bit of perspective because I think it's hard to do it when you just hear trillions. So to pay for Ted Cruz's tax cut, you got to get to something like $8.6 trillion. If Ted Cruz eliminated Medicaid and the Children's Health and Insurance Program in their entirety, he wouldn't get there. He'd have to then add all federal education spending. So cutting all Pell Grants, all K-12 subsidies, Head Start, everything of that nature. All federal spending on justice functions. So no more FBI, no more Drug Enforcement Administration. Federal court system goes away. The federal attorneys go away. All international spending. So you close all of our foreign embassies. You zero out all of our aid to Israel. You kill all of that, and he's still not done. You got to take out all federal transportation spending. So everything we're putting into highways, everything we're putting into getting around, and all spending on veterans, and. Donald Trump would then need another trillion dollars on top of that of cuts. And that's to say nothing of both men then wanting to spend even more money on the military. These are really wildly implausible tax plans. And, and maybe on some of them, they're not that implausible if you just want to come out and say, well, I'm going to get rid of Social Security. But no, neither of them have said anything like that. And I don't think in any real way they're being held to account for this. Sanders, I think, has really tried to say, this is how I'll do it. And he's been willing to take the pain of having proposed pretty significant tax increases. Hillary Clinton, I think in part because she imagines herself being in the White House and having to make good on these promises, has come out with a pretty modest agenda that she feels that she could actually present to Congress. But Trump and Cruz and, and also Rubio and Jeff Bush, and John Kasich's plan is not estimated here because he's not given many details on it, but it's also a pretty big tax cut. The Republican Party has gotten into this weird... Totally fantastical one-upsmanship on on taxes where they propose these tax cuts. Every one is bigger than the last. They've all become completely huge. They dwarf anything George W. Bush proposed. They do so at a time when we have deficits and not surpluses. And the party hasn't really paid a price for it, but it should. This is not a responsible way to talk about governance. And it's not a responsible way to present your plans to the country because, in a way, one thing I do think is true is that they're gaming these calculators, that we are – Pumping these plans into the system and saying, oh, here's a huge tax cut. But the converse of, of Sanders' argument that it's not a real tax increase because it's money that you would have been giving to your private insurer and now you're giving less money than that to the federal government, it works in reverse for, for Trump and Cruz. If you were getting Medicaid – and now you're not, but you got a much smaller tax cut than the cost of health care. You didn't get a big tax cut. You lost more money than that in government services. And it's really frustrating to watch this be a way you can campaign for president. It's a it's a way of the media has sort of normalized it and, and is okay with it. But it's not an it's not appropriate. It's not respectful to the voters.
2: Right, and it's a challenge. It's very hard for journalists to navigate as well yeah. because we have you know as were you wrote the piece. I think you were kind of talking about earlier where you kind of wrote through like holy shit these are massive tax increases or massive ta- tax cuts and look at how impossible they would be to implement but this calculator does it puts them side by side and it takes them as kind of similar proposals even when as you point out they're not i was i was editor on the piece and i was comfortable with doing that, because I think it still was important to show how taxes change and, you know, kind of right through in the story that goes with it. You know, here's what you're getting with Sanders and with Trump and Cruz, you're getting massive service cuts. We just don't know what they are. But it's I can totally see why they're doing it. And it's a hard thing to grapple with as a journalist to write about them appropriately. I don't think we want to ignore them and say you know they don't exist because they're out there but it's it's a challenge and one that i think they are creating intentionally because it's very hard to say you know look what the american people would lose if we lost this tax revenue and we don't have a clear answer and something i just want
1: something i just want to know and i apologize for cutting off matt is that this is one way in which these plans keep getting less responsible if people remember back to 2012 mitt romney also had a plan and that plan also didn't add up But the reason it didn't add up is Mitt Romney promised it would be revenue neutral. He said it would all be paid for. And he also said it wouldn't raise taxes on anyone in the middle class and you couldn't make those two things work. And so Romney came under a lot of fire, but he at least had placed it in a context where he said, Look, I'm not going to tell you how I'm doing this, but at the very least, I am promising you that this is going to be done like that. And it is a case that Cruz has proposed a balanced budget amendment and and so forth. So there's a sort of background set of promises for fiscal responsibility. But they've kind of, I think the lesson a lot of Republicans took from Romney, who, by the way, first came out with a pretty modest tax plan and only after Herman Cain's 999 plan really caught fire, came out with a much bigger and, and harder to calculate tax plan, is There's no cost to being irresponsible here, but there is a cost to being responsible. There's a cost to saying how you'll pay for it, a cost to saying what you'll cut, a cost to even proposing rules saying, you know, you're not going to raise taxes on this group or you're not or you're going to make sure that it's revenue neutral. And so we've just gone into a total land of, of irresponsibility. I don't love the rhetoric of irresponsibility.
0: Like I think we know exactly how these plans will be paid for because there's lots of Republican governors in the country. What happens is, is you cut taxes by as much as you can politically, and then you see what the financial market reaction to that is. And then to the extent that the financial market reaction to that is bad, you react to it by cutting services for poor people. And that may be wrong, like morally speaking, but it's, you know, I mean, we know what the agenda is. And, you know, I mean, that's why there's balanced budget amendment backstops, right? They're trying to make it procedurally automatic that these things get cut. You can look at, you know, more, quote unquote, rigorous conservative thinkers and what they want to do is... Brutalize spending to help poor people, and they write like sometimes like high toned thinky books about how helping poor people is really bad for poor people because what they really need is a job and and so you know i mean we we know what they're doing, and it's it's as responsible as anything else I think it's just like it's wrong it's mean. The other thing that I think is interesting about this is that. If you sort of ask in abstract terms, you talk to economists, is it important that we worry about the budget deficit right now? The ones you will find saying that it is tend to be on the conservative side tend to be more affiliated with the Republican Party, whereas you'll find a, a lot of economists in the Democratic Party who say, "No, you know, it's like it's actually not that big a deal, you know, not that we should add like nine trillion dollars to the deficit over ten years, but like maybe one or two or three, uh, something like that. And this has no impact on the sort of political responses, right, you would think from looking at these things that Republican politicians are really into chapter 12 of Keynes's general theory and modern monetary theory and, and all this other stuff, and that they're looking at historically low interest rates, a low labor share of the economy, a Federal Reserve that says it can't get inflation up high enough. So they're like, yeah, you know, we should just come up with our best shot, and that's gigantic tax cuts. And that Democrats are sitting there listening to banker types and and deficit hawks. And so like even Bernie Sanders is at least wants you to think he's being incredibly scrupulous about this stuff. And they put out like these like infographics about like how everything in Bernie's plan is paid for, you know, like, and, and we can disagree about whether his numbers really add up the way the way they do. But he's definitely trying to present an image of himself as this like, Rigorous accountant guy and and he even says in his stump speech he doesn 't just talk about his plan to make college tuition free but about how he 's going to make wall street pay that 's like part of the pitch for it and and it 's strange i mean there 's an actual I think that the Democrats are maybe being excessively concerned about this kind of thing. And and conversely, I think maybe not as concerned as they should be about whether the new programs they're proposing to create are like actually good ideas or will actually work. I remember when Bush cut taxes in 2001, Democrats said it was going to explode the deficit and crater the economy. He did it again in 2003. It didn't happen. Uh, They complained relentlessly throughout his administration about these deficits and terrible things that would happen. Then Obama became president, Republican. And started complaining, interest rates are lower than ever. Inflation is lower than ever. And I think it would actually be good in some ways to see a politician openly espouse, like pushing the envelope on this stuff. But the question is, is like, do you have good ideas?
2: One space I'm more concerned than I think you might be, Ezra, is in the estimates that Sanders has made on his own plan. So they are you know different numbers but they're really different numbers and it's i a fair think point. they really will affect the size of the taxes that people are going to be asked to be paid if they if we did switch to a single payer system can we
0: explain like specifically what that's about
2: sure so you know sanders has come out with a price on his single payer system i don't remember the actual Number. And then there was a competing analysis from Ken Thorpe at Emory University, a health economist there, that Dylan Matthews on our staff really dug into in detail. One of you you should read Dylan's entire article and we'll put it in show notes. One of the kind of most worrying things in Dylan's piece was that the original Sanders plan assumed we saved more money on drugs than we currently spend, that we were getting the drug companies to pay us, or the drug companies were paying us essentially to take their drugs. And once he pointed that out, the Sanders campaign revised their numbers and changed it to a number that was smaller than current spending. But that suggested to me, you know, an almost possibly willful underestimation of how much a single payer system would cost. And I think that's, you know, a space where, like I would like to see more honesty from Cruz and Trump on how they would make their tax cuts work. I want a fair estimate of like what it's going to cost to create single payer. And you see this when Vermont tried to do single payer, the exact kind of same thing happened where the administration there, um, Governor Shumlin's administration had estimates on how much it would cost. And then they really got into the implementation. Turns out costs were a lot higher to actually pull it off than they had initially estimated. And they scrapped the plan at the end of 2014. So I think you know there's space to demand kind of a more honest accounting from sanders of you know if political revolution is what you want you know how much is that going to cost
1: yeah i don't i don't i don't disagree with any of that i think that it has been a recurrent facet of the Sanders campaign that they have very optimistic and somewhat shoddy initial estimates. I think that obviously it was a big fight when they passed around the the estimate that they had not themselves produced, but that they definitely backed and talked up in the press about how much their proposals would increase economic growth. Their single payer estimate, you know, as you say, wasn't just very optimistic, but was very sloppy in certain areas, i.e. Saying they would save more money on prescription drugs than we were actually spending, but the point I do want to make here, and I do want to give them a little bit of praise here, is that they were trying, and I think that's true. Like I really think they—I don't think they're just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. They didn't have to come out with estimates at this level. They didn't have to say exactly how they would pay for it. This is things that you're seeing very much in the Republicans side aren't being done, and so I think there is often an optimism in. All kinds of campaign rhetoric. I think if you go back and look at Obama's rhetoric around his campaign, his healthcare plan, it was a much more modest plan. So the estimates, which I think were both slightly more policy talent backing them, but also just like they were just more modest estimates. So, but it was going to save everybody twenty five hundred bucks. It was going to make sure that nobody who didn't, nobody who liked their healthcare plan had to lose it. Which obviously did not turn out to be true. Sanders, I think, has a much bigger plan, and so the optimistic estimates end up having much, much bigger effects. But I see what Sanders is doing as a little bit more in the tradition of what is normal in campaigns, where they are pretty confident in, in their plans, and, and during the campaign, they don't think too much about the downsides. Where I think that you know, on the Republican side, they have, in some ways, gotten much less criticism than Sanders has, because they have no details to dig into. And I think Sanders has ended up getting a lot of criticism for releasing, uh, including, by the way, from us and, and, and from me, for releasing estimates that are, are not good and, and they should be criticized for not being very good. But they at least gave us something to work with. And so I think that the end result was a much more reality-based discussion of what he's proposing and what the trade-offs are. Whereas I think the Republicans, in ways that unnerve me a little bit, have managed to largely escape that kind of discussion by just not giving anyone any details to work with at all. Well, also, they've,
0: they've escaped scrutiny because they don't disagree. I mean, Cruz's plan and Trump's plan are not identical. And they're actually, I mean, Calculator helps you see this. For specific people, they actually come out being quite differently. But they have the same contour, that it's a very big tax cut. It's quite regressive. And there's no explanation of pay-fors. So neither of them criticizes the other for it. Whereas Sanders's plan is really very different from Hillary Clinton's. And so they've been in an ongoing argument about specifically this question of, is Sanders' plan awesome and Hillary is just like totally failing to deliver the goods of a welfare state? Or is Sanders' plan shoddy and unworkable, right? Like that's actually the substance of the Democratic primary. Whereas whatever the Trump versus Cruz primary is about, it is not about whose tax plan like makes sense conceptually. So the press, you tend to cover conflict, right? And pressure to produce more details tends to come out of those kind of political conflicts. What will be important to see is, you know, when things turn to a general election matchup and... Uh, I guess Trump or maybe Cruz or whomever is going to have a plan that is markedly different for, from the Democrats. Is will there be scrutiny to you know what is sort of behind these these big numbers or, or not? You know, I would say for Sanders that. To me, what, what unnerves me about his program is not whether the precise monetary figures cash out or not, but that I feel like they don't have a good words, plain language description of what it looks like to have a universe in which everyone has healthcare with no copayments and no deductibles and no restrictions on eligible treatments. How does that go? Right? Like, Where do the doctors come from To provide these treatments? Or do they think there will be no aggregate increase in the amount of treatment people are getting, even though it's all at no cost to the patients? What's supposed to happen? Because we know that in countries that have national healthcare systems? It's not like politics ends and you just enter utopia, right? Like Canadians are constantly doing things with their health policy, precisely because this question—I mean, it's not a question of is single payer a workable system for Canada. It's been working for decades, uh, but they still need to need to do things, just like we have free k-12 uh, elementary schools for everybody you know free at point of service uh, they're paid for by, by taxes but that doesn't mean like everybody gets the education that they want. you have to run the system somehow and it, it's a very sort of like under conceptualized element of the plan and I think it's I think it's actually a much harder question than like are we going to have a 625 percent payroll tax or is it going to be 6.65 is like what what does the doctor do when there's a flood of new patients? Mm-hmm.
1: One thing I think is interesting about the the Sanders candidacy, and this just speaks to the fact that he is, as they say, expanding the Overton window in, in a new direction. You're, I think you're seeing Trump and Cruz push it in a direction that the conservative movement has been pushing in for a long time already, is that he is bringing to light trade-offs that I think mm-hmm. people are uncomfortable talking about in a way that tax cuts are something we've gotten very used to talking about. So, you know, as you say, I think that the question of the the tax increases and their size can take people aback a little bit because we're not really used to talking about the federal government in this day and age absorbing very large portions of the private sector, bringing them on budget and having people pay the government for them instead of having people pay for them privately. And when people look at that, I think it 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 does. It it takes them aback. It's something new. And it's something that in American politics has has traditionally been been quite a bad loser. And similarly, I think that there are big questions around Sanders and trusting government. Bernie Sanders is someone who really does believe that at least when the government is being run by by people of good faith, the government can do and does do tremendously good work. And I think Sanders also has a deep level of skepticism about obviously certain private enterprises, right? The insurance industry, the banking industry, places where you know I think that they still have a mixed record but do a lot of good. I think that he actually thinks that they do almost no good, or at least to a, to a first approximation, a lot less good than people think. And so I think that one interesting thing is that discussion and how that discussion would play out in a general election. The Sanders campaign really does not like... They really feel that a focus on the tax increases in their plans are unfair. They think that... The language there is biased against them because that is not accounting for the fact that it is a replacement in cost. I mean, for some people, it is just a very large tax increase. If you're a rich person under Sanders care, you just lose a shit ton of money because you are paying for the care of poor people. And also a lot of the other programs that Sanders is bringing up, like free college tuition for for in-state schools, you might still be sending your kid to a private school. So you're just paying a lot more money. A lot of people are just losers under the plan. But nevertheless, I think that there is a dimension of it where they feel that these kinds of debates are the, – the playing field is tilted in a way that hurts the ability to argue for the, the kinds of things Sanders is arguing for. And on the one hand, I actually think they're right about that, and it's sort of what I'm, I'm pointing out a bit around these tax plans, that we've somehow normalized talking about huge fucking service cuts – without ever even defining them, whereas it's very dangerous in American life to talk about large tax increases. But it is also, I think, the case that they're, in my experience, unprepared for this kind of thing. They're unprepared for it when it is just an analysis. And I think it's going to leave them much more prepared for it when it's actually an attack, Mm -hmm. right? There's a real difference between pushing against people who are actually just trying to, like, lay out what the plan's trade-offs would be. But the Republican Party is not just going to be trying to lay out a plan's trade-offs, right? They're going to be using these tax increases, using the absorption of the medical system, and painting the scariest possible picture. And I think arguing that that is unfair and and not a nice thing to do, the Sanders campaign, I think if they were to get to a general election, would really need to toughen up about this because they would be running a campaign that certainly the conventional wisdom in American politics is that this kind of campaign loses big for exactly these kinds of reasons, that Americans don't have enough trust in government to accept these kinds of tax increases and this kind of promise that the government will run these super essential services well and use that money well. But they would be arguing for that anyway, and they'd be arguing for it within the conventional terms of American politics and facing an enemy who, unlike Hillary Clinton, I think would not be be saying, "Well, I think that's a little bit unrealistic," but would be trying to paint a sort of hellish, dystopic picture of of socialism,
2: right? And I think it, you know, it really lays bare the type of choices that the Sanders campaign wants us to make about how we spend our money and who we send it to. I think right now, most of us like are not giant and fans of our insurance companies, but then we like think about, you know, the five thousand, ten thousand we send them in premiums. Most of us, it's been working out, maybe like decently okay even though like we don't like whatever they I deny mean, m- or, most people
1: like their own insurance yeah
2: you like your own insurance you like your own doctor and you kind mm-hmm. of worry well at least my insurance lets me see my doctor so you know that's fine one of the things this calculator exposed for me in a way i didn't understand before is like how big of a decision the sanders campaign kind of makes us think about of who is providing these really essential services and how who we're going to trust like a very large chunk of our income to All
0: right, let's take a break and then uh, quickly, quickly talk about race and, and the recession. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Redream. Redream is a nationwide project that's taking a look at the idea of the American dream. The idea is to discover, with online videos and local meetups, what it means to make it in the 21st century. Watch the Redream documentary series on YouTube as it delves into the hopes and struggles of average Americans. There's a new video every weekday from now through April 22nd. The project pairs online storytelling with over 30 community engagement events. Redream is led by KCPT in partnership with 14 other PBS member stations all across the country. It's sponsored by ThinkShift, an initiative of the DeBruce Foundation. Watch the videos, find local events, and join the conversation at redreamproject.org. For our, our sort of research paper of the week, I, I wanted to take a look at a, a paper that that came out in 2014 and was not, uh, as far as I recall, didn't like make big waves at, at the time, but I saw mentioned on, on Twitter recently, and turns out to, I think, shed a lot of light on what we're seeing play out in 2016. And it's, it's an interesting sort of paper that's kind of about the Donald Trump campaign. And it's interesting because it's not about the Donald Trump campaign. It was based on surveys that were done in 2011. It was published in in 2014. And and what it is, is uh, Brian McKenzie is a professor at University of Maryland. And he decided to look into the question of how people's perception of race and the economy during the Great Recession was was interplayed. And he uses this survey that Kaiser Family Foundation did with the Washington Post, and they were focused on healthcare care was their sort of uh, research aim. But they sort of asked some other questions, and it produces... Um a rich kind of kind of data set. And one question they asked was whether Obama has done in your opinion too little, about the right amount or too much to help African Americans improve their economic conditions. Another thing they asked was if you are personally feeling frustrated with your financial situation and they asked about if you blame Wall Street for your economic woes, and they asked if you blame politicians in Washington for your economic woes. And he shows that if you look at white people, there is a very strong co-correlation between believing that Obama is doing too much to help black people, being frustrated with your personal finances, and placing a disproportionate level of blame on politicians in Washington rather than on Wall Street for economic problems. It's worth saying, objective facts are that the recession was actually really, really bad for uh, for blacks and, and Latinos, that uh, because they have lower education levels and were actually more likely to be in subprime. So, mortgages. It was bad for everyone, but it it was worse for for minority groups. And nothing that was done in the stimulus or other recovery programs uh, sort of undid that. But they found that for, for white people who think that there's a class of white people at any rate, who it seems feel that the Obama administration and other politicians in Washington caused economic problems for white people by taking measures to give sort of special favorative treatment to African Americans. And then, I don't know, the paper just kind of ends. It's (laughs) an interesting sociological research. But you flash forward two years later, and you see this kind of political phenomenon that clearly features a lot of rage at the political establishment. It clearly has something to do with people's concerns about the economy. And it clearly has something to do with a kind of white racial panic. So this, this research showing that that formula for that really sort of existed in the prior years, that brings those things together, not as different elements, but as saying that it's the same people feel all these things, and they feel them together. They feel that white people have lost political clout in Washington, and that is causing them to be in distressed economic conditions, Uh, to, to me was kind of fascinating.
1: So one thing that I think this really helps clarify is the particular way in which Donald Trump has split the Republican consensus apart. So Republicans have for a long time now been the party conceptually and certainly on domestic policy, not as true on foreign policy, of smaller government. They are skeptical of the welfare state. They want to devolve Medicare to private insurers, devolve Medicaid to the state, save reformed welfare. They want to make food stamps, a block grant program, et cetera, et cetera. And something that I think Trump has shown is how much less government, cutting government and devolving government was a second best compromise of a number of groups for whom that was not actually what they wanted. So what many rich donors in the Republican Party want is to pay less in taxes. That is their primary objective and to have less regulation, but to pay less in taxes. And a byproduct of that objective is you have to cut government services in order to pay for it because... That's just how the math works out. So you've got a lot. The the Republican donor class, they want lower taxes. That's primarily what they care about. And less government is a side effect of that. But then there is the Republican non-donor class, the white working class. And their problem with the welfare state is not that they think the government is inefficient and it isn't that they think that taxes aren't worth paying to pay for it. It's that they think their taxes are being used to fund a welfare state for other people. They think that their taxes are being used to benefit African-Americans, to benefit Latinos, to benefit illegal immigrants with food stamps, with Obama phones, with Obamacare, with all these different things. And it's one reason the Tea Party has always been, if you poll them, very supportive of Medicare care and social security, because those are programs that white Americans feel very comfortable with, and that they know they get over time. The Republican coalition is also older, so a lot of them are on those programs currently. They don't want those taken away. But I think what Donald Trump has done to some degree, at least in his rhetoric, if not in the policies he's put forward, right, is that he has split this coalition apart a little bit. He has made a public-facing argument that what he is here to do is not cut Medicare, is not cut Social Security, is not take health care away from people. It's to make sure all those programs are here to benefit you, the people who made America great in the first place. And that argument is made, I think, very clearly through his arguments about illegal immigration and to some degree even just immigration more generally. There's obviously a heavy racial overlay to a lot of his rhetoric, but he's really focused the social safety net rhetoric on illegal immigrants, on the way they're costing states and cities all this money, and he's playing to the this- This idea that government isn't bad. It's who is benefiting from government who is bad. That that you, the hardworking white working class, are sort of getting fleeced. So... The Democrats primarily can give money to immigrants, to African-Americans, to illegal immigrants, to all, all these other people. And I think that's actually proven for the reasons sort of laid out in this paper to be pretty potent. People have believed for a long time that there it's been a big reason that American politics realigned in the 20th century as white Southerners began to feel that they had previously been very supportive of many of these government programs. But as these government programs began to benefit African-Americans more, they began to turn against them in big numbers. And then more recently, there's a real feeling that under Obama, that the powers of the federal government have been used to disproportionately help minorities. This was part of Mitt Romney's 47% language, part of the idea that the Democrats are out there giving people gifts, and that's why the Republican Party keeps falling behind. And most Republicans' answer has been implicitly, that there should be less government and nobody should get gifts. But Donald Trump's answer is that there should be a lot of government, but all this free stuff it should be going to you, the the sort of core of America, not to these sort of other groups. And I think it's been it's been a powerful part of his appeal.
2: Two thoughts on this to toss in here. Um, one is you know there is a kernel of truth to this feeling. One of the so obviously I would argue the biggest expansion. Government services is probably Obamacare that's happened during the Obama administration. And the administration has been incredibly cognizant of minority outreach. Like they are very interested in making sure that African American and Latino people who generally have had higher uninsured rates are getting signed up for Obamacare. So there's a lot of Spanish outreach, there's a lot of work to reach those populations. So there is some truth to the idea that the Obama administration has been trying to help these these generally disadvantaged. Groups because they are, are the ones who stood to benefit the most from a law like Obamacare because they've had lower uninsured rates. Definitely expanding Medicaid will disproportionately help communities of color gain insurance. Another thing you know, I see looking at this, it kind of seems to reflect to me a lot of the polarization of the Obama era, where you could really watch the same presidency and come away in your mind with two very different stories about what's happening with it. And a lot of that is likely being shaped by the media you consume and kind of the stories you hear either about Obama phones or even just like with Obamacare. Like you could learn about Obamacare giving all these people you know insurance. Some other interesting research from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that Democrats, most of them will say they know someone who's been helped by Obamacare, whereas Republicans, most of them say they know someone who's been hurt by Obamacare. I don't think there's actually probably a huge disparity in that. If anything, there's actually some interesting research showing that more Republicans decided to enroll in their parents' plan under Obamacare than Democrats. But it really speaks to the very different experiences a lot of Americans feel that they've had with the Obama administration based on kind of the news they consume that's really shaping what we think about what's happening in Washington and how it's changing what's happening with our own lives.
0: To me, it was also just a, a reminder that, you know, as we sort of puzzle over the, these campaigns, and, and particularly when you look at the sort of class divide in the Republican Party, that, you know, for journalists and for what are nowadays political professionals, politics is about ideas and, and ideology. But for a lot of people, and traditionally in the United States, politics has been about group interests. And when we talk. Uh, weeks ago about political realism. That was one of the ideas was that politics was, in a sense, used to operate more around the idea of, look, I represent these people, you represent those people, maybe we're going to work something out, maybe we're going to fight. And that Trump is, in a way, a throwback to that kind of thing, to a view that the question is not do we have like a nordic style social democracy or do we return to a, a gilded age libertarian paradise but it's like who whom and trump has an answer he says in his speech like we love our vets you know he we're going to take care of our vets he loves veterans he loves senior citizens he loves uh, what does he say he loves the poorly educated but he doesn't like immigrants right it's it's about who is he for and who is he not for and trying to tell a plausible story about being for enough people to win but against enough people that there's actually something meaningful to, to take away from them. Whereas Obama and, and Ted Cruz are very different and, and Bernie Sanders, all incredibly different in, in their politics, but they all are nominally these like utopians, right? Like their ideas are just good. They're good for everyone. Or in Bernie's case, they're bad for like six bankers. But but the idea is that like they're really awesome, not that there's like a large block of people out there who are going to be the losers in this plan, and that's why there's going to be winners. You know, it it makes Trump's worldview seem quite nasty, but there's a certain groundedness to it uh, that, that I think is actually sometimes lacking in other modern day politicians that Trade-offs in policy can be really, really sharp at times. And if you want to do like a lot of help for some people, you're probably going to need to hurt others.
1: You know what's often lacking in the podcast space?
2: What's that, Ezra?
1: Sharing of the podcast you like with your friends and family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So often people will enjoy a podcast and then just go on to the next podcast. What a shame. I know. But what would be great if they did is if they went on to Twitter or they went on to Facebook and said that you might enjoy the Weeds podcast, oh, friends and family, or you can do it on messaging platforms like WhatsApp. Because I've heard Put a
2: note in your electronic medical record. Your patient might need to listen to the Weeds. I don't don't
1: really think that's as good of an idea. Also, also, it's it's hard for the patients to access those records. The point is that we are in a zero sum conflict
0: with other (laughs) podcast (laughs) and we need your
1: help. Uh, Thank you, as always, for listening to The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez. We will see you next week.